0: All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. Once again, we can come together to study your word. I pray that you open our hearts through the Holy Spirit to hear and understand uh, what you would have us know from scripture, uh, what the original authors intended for us to understand from their writing, uh, which we understand to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we ask, Lord, for your illumination on this scripture. Uh, that we can uh, take it to heart and change the way that we live, to live more Christ-like lives. And I pray these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right. So this is part two to our Foundations uh, series. We did one of these back in January, and we looked at Genesis 1 through 4. Um, And it's giving us a foundational understanding of basically what scripture is, what the message of the Bible is, uh, why we have it, and uh, the ultimate goal of that is for us to better understand the book that we're currently studying, which is Revelation, Uh, because Revelation is really the last chapter in these 66 books, and it draws from the progressive Revelation uh, that had been completed before it, Um, so we don't want to dislocate that. Uh, book of Revelation, we want to understand it through scripture. Uh, So that's our goal here. Uh, We're looking first at Genesis 1 through 11, uh, because Genesis 1 through 11 is the overture to the symphony of scripture. Uh, It introduces to us all of the themes that will be expressed later on in scripture, uh, such as sin and salvation, as God's plan for the kingdom uh, is different um, is different organizations of man and the animal kingdom and the angels. Um, We see all of that touched on here in Genesis 1 through 11. So this is going to be our foundation for understanding. Uh, We've got one more in this set of Genesis 1 through 11, uh, which is going to be Genesis uh, 10 through actually probably about 15 to 17. Um, But our main focus is going to be there in 11. Um, and that's going to introduce us to some more covenants. But for tonight, we're going to focus just on Genesis 6 through 9, uh, which is the Noahic covenant, the covenant which God made with Noah, that he would not destroy the earth again with a flood. All right, so first let's review a bit uh, what we learned in the last one, because again, it was about three months ago that we did one of these foundations. So we'll review the Edenic covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam in Eden prior to the fall, and then the Edemic covenant, which God made after the fall. Uh, And these are just theological names for these covenants so that we understand what we're talking about uh, without having to explain where in scripture we find them. Um, So the Edenic is Genesis 1 through 3, and the Edemic is Genesis 1. three through five, Uh, three through six, seven is where we're going to find that. Uh, And these covenants are legal language that God uses to tell man his expectations. And these expectations govern how God uh, intends to govern his creation and how men should act in this creation. Uh, So a covenant, here we've got a definition by Clarence Larkin. He was a Baptist pastor back in 1919. He says, God's covenants with man originate with him, being God, and generally consist of a promise based on the fulfillment of certain conditions. Each one introduces a new dispensation. Now, some of these words are a little old, um, but we're going to look at covenant uh, as a biblical word that just means contract. It's a contract that God writes with man. These contracts originate with God, not with man. So some of these covenants will be um, will be based on man's response to the covenant, such as the Mosaic covenant, where man is actually given expectations and responsibilities that he has to uh, fulfill in order to receive the blessings of that covenant. But he is also given uh, covenants that are not conditional upon him, the unconditional covenants, such as the Noahic covenant that we're going to look at tonight. There are no conditions put on man for how he ought to behave in order to receive these promises. One of the promises being that God is not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. There is nothing that man has to do in order for God to uh, be faithful to that promise. That promise is God's, and there's nothing we can do to erase or diminish that promise. Uh, So the Noahic covenant that we'll look at tonight we call an unconditional covenant because it's uh, based solely on God's uh, responsibility. Uh, My definition of a covenant or a biblical covenant here is legal contracts with binding and understandable language between God and man. So God's either going to bind himself contractually um, to man that he will fulfill his promises or he will bind himself with man, uh, that man fulfills his promises and God also fulfills his promises. We've got eight covenants in scripture. Um, Some of these are understood theologically. Some of these are understood biblically. And what that means is that some of these are explicitly called covenants. Others of them have contractual language but are never explicitly called covenants in scripture. For example, the Edenic and the Ademic Covenant, you'll never see the word covenant used with those, but because of the type of language that God uses, we understand that they are covenantal. Uh, this is consistent with a feature of scripture called progressive revelation, uh, that Adam wasn't aware of the entire span of revelation. Um, at the beginning of um, history, but that God progressively reveals himself and progressively reveals to man the way he conducts his household, uh, his household being the sphere of man on this earth. Uh, So for the first and second covenants, we understand those theologically based on what style language and that that style of language is consistent throughout these covenants. Uh, The Noahic covenant, we are going to see that this is called a covenant Um, and that uh, God is contracting himself with man. These are our four foundational covenants. So if we look back here, we've got one, two, three, and four, and then five is red, and then we've got three more. Uh, This red covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the land, Davidic, and new covenants are all founded upon the Abrahamic covenant. So these first four covenants are really the foundational covenants. Everything else is an amplification of that Abrahamic covenant. So we've got the Edenic covenant, how God intended his creation to be. We're going to see a return to that um, expectation in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's our ultimate trajectory. That's God's created order. That's what he intends earth to be. Uh, we had the fall in which man was operating in a different, uh, in a, a different sphere of nature. He is no longer operating in a perfect world, uh, a world of innocence, but he's operating in a world uh, that now has sin, and God has to put certain restrictions on him uh, and govern him in certain ways to protect him from that sin. Um, so that's going to be this uh, covenant with Adam that he creates. And that period is called conscience, um, theologically. Tonight, we'll look at the Noahic covenant, that uh, under this uh, Adamic covenant, in which conscience uh, was the way that God governed man, um, they became worse and worse to the point where God had to destroy the earth with a flood. Um, so in order to protect him from that uh, happening again, he had to give him the Noahic covenant in which he has man govern himself with actual governmental structure. Um, So he'll give power to governments at that point. And then in our next foundation, we'll look at uh, the Abrahamic covenant, which opens the um, stewardship of promise, where God promises to Abraham land, seed, and blessing uh, for an eternal um, covenant with with Abraham. But tonight, our focus is the Noahic covenant. Uh, Just as a little review of the principles that we learned from the first foundation series, we learned that God uses language in an understandable way. He uses language as his mode of creation, Uh, he spoke creation into being. He created man and only man with the capability of understanding and returning language that not only can we understand God's words to us, but we can encode our thoughts into language and respond to God. Uh, This isn't possible with animals. Um, God gave us the capacity for language so that we could communicate with him. The logical conclusion of that is that God meant himself to be understood. So when we read scripture, we're going to read it as if God intends to be understood. Um, So we're not going to read it allegorically. We're going to read it Uh, just as if we were having a conversation with God, and this was the story that he was telling us. We understand that God gives man responsibility. Um, He was not hands-off in the creation. Uh, He told man what he expects of man, and that purpose was for man to rule over creation. We saw this in Genesis 1.26, God speaking with himself in the Trinity about what he intends to do, and then in Genesis 1.28, where he actually communicates this to man, Uh, that this is his expectation on him, Um, and that expectation is broadly dominion, to have dominion to subdue the earth um, and to govern it as a steward uh, for God's glory. Man failed to rule over creation, um, and in doing so, he ceded rule to the serpent. Uh, We see this all throughout scripture where Satan is the ruler of this world. He is the present uh, powers of the uh, air. And uh, we, we see this in Genesis 3, and we're going to see it also um, all through Revelation, um, that Satan is the current ruler of this world. Where he got that uh, right to rule was from Adam, when Adam subjected himself to the rule of the serpent. Rather than subjecting himself to God um, in obedience to God, he allowed doubt to enter through the serpent and uh, ceded that right to rule the earth to Satan. Uh, And the the story of scripture is essentially how God maintains justice and mercy uh, and uh, works out his uh, method of salvation for Adam and Eve and for the rest of humanity, uh, for creation which was cursed, uh, but he also deals justly with the serpent who tricked Adam and Eve Uh, into um, ceding that rule to him. Uh, So that leads us to point number four. We learned that nature, mankind, and the serpent especially, but vicariously Satan here, um, was also cursed and judged. The language in here where it speaks to Satan, it appears that Satan had already been judged prior to this judgment um, because God also doesn't call Satan to account here. Um, Satan will be called to account in Revelation, but man and the woman are called to account. Uh, Satan's um, call to account is uh, outside of our scope of Genesis 1 through 3, Uh, but surely Satan, just as all other created beings, are called to account for their actions. Uh, And we learned finally that um, after the fall, we needed a covering. Uh, That covering eventually will be or was Jesus Christ on the cross who died to cover our sins with a blood offering. Uh, but that uh, throughout the old Testament, after the fall uh, man had a responsibility to approach God through sacrifice. Now I was reading in Leviticus this morning, which is really fun reading. If you ever get a chance, you won't fall asleep at all, but uh um, I came across this verse, and I thought it would be pretty apropos for tonight, and it's in Leviticus 10, um, under the section of the sin of Nadab and Abihu, uh, who did not listen to God when he is giving the Levitical rules for how to offer a sacrifice. These two sons of, um, of Aaron offered what was called strange fire to God. It was the burning of incense which had not been sanctioned by God where God's giving them all these rules of how they ought to be governing um, the sacrifices in Israel. Um, Nadab and Abihu took it upon themselves to offer a sacrifice that God had not told them to offer and so in Leviticus ten three it says Moses said to Aaron it is what the Lord spoke saying by those who come near me I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And that's really the principle that we're looking at here in Genesis 4 uh, with Cain and Abel, is that uh, we don't approach God on our own merit. We approach him on the merit of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament expression of this before the complete revelation of who Jesus Christ would be was the understanding that we approach God through sacrifice. Uh, that we no longer have this ability to reach out to God and communicate with him because there's this barrier of sin. Um, Ephesians 2:3 is going to or Ephesians two and three is going to talk about that taking down of this barrier uh, where we're able to um, to approach God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ um, through that priesthood rather than the priesthood of sacrifices. Uh, but, uh, Genesis 4 gives us that principle of sacrifice that becomes a dominant theme throughout scripture. Uh, we have some divine institutions. These are institutions which God mandated and that thus we should not be tampering with. Um, the first uh, that we see is from Genesis 1, 26 and 28, and it's broadly titled Dominion. Uh, inside of this, divine institution of dominion is uh, the institution of labor, that work is actually a good and a virtuous thing. Um, It's not until after the fall that it becomes toilsome, uh, that we now have to work and labor just to survive. Uh, Work and labor was present in the garden before the fall. Work and labor is not the problem. The problem is that the earth itself is cursed and will not um, produce without Hard labor. Uh, So this dominion is a divine institution. It's also the the authority that we've been given to rule this earth, uh, where you see in like the Nazi Green Movement back in the 20s and 30s, uh, that they had this concept of nature as something perfect, and that anything man did to it was corrupt. This is not God's understanding of nature. He gave nature for us to use. It's for the benefit of man. Because man is the um, crown jewel in his creation, not the earth itself. Um, You see Gaia worship in a lot of the pagan religions, where rather than man ruling on top of the earth, you've got um, the earth as God and man as a corrupt parasite on it. This is not God's view of creation. In Genesis 2, uh, 24 and 25, we have the divine institution of marriage. The first thing that was not good in creation was that man was alone. God taught man his need for a a helper, meat for him, by having him name the animals, where he brought him animals, male and female, and had him name them. Uh, It would not have taken Adam long to realize that all of these animals have pairs. Where is the pair for me? Uh, God brought about his um, helper uh, not as a direct creation of God, but out of, um, out of the bone of man. Uh, and interestingly, he did not take her from a foot bone or from a head bone. He took her from a rib bone. Um, that woman is to govern over creation beside man, not under his feet or over his head. Um, she's a partner with him. Uh, and we learn throughout scripture revelation, um, just how important this image is to God, um, because Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church, just as the man is the head of the wife, uh, even laying down his life for her. So we ought to govern our marriages in the same way that God, or that Jesus Christ governs the church with care, love, and sacrifice. Uh, So this is the biblical institution of marriage, also, the divine institution of family, man and woman were told to fill the earth. Uh, they were not told to remain celibate, to eat and enjoy the garden. Uh, he intended mankind to repopulate itself um, and to fill the earth. Uh, this is seen in Genesis 1.28, also in 3.16, as part of the curse, uh, where a woman will now have pain in her childbirth. Um, that she will have increased childbirth, um, but also in Genesis 3.15, where the promise uh, is vicariously given to man through the curse on the serpent, uh, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Uh, In order for woman to have a seed, she has to reproduce. Uh, And so we see here the biblical institution for family, uh, where family is... Before the fall, in Genesis 1.28, it was already the plan of God. It's also his means of, um, of continuity in humankind in order to get to that seed who would be Jesus Christ. Um, he does that through the reproduction of humankind. That was a function that he built into man um, as something that would glorify him and ultimately lead to his own incarn- incarnation, Um, in Jesus Christ. Uh, We see it in 4, 1 through 2, with the birth of Cain and Abel, um, and also later on in chapter 5, with the birth of Seth, um, who would take on that line after Abel. And we see it again in 8, 7, with Noah and his family. In Genesis 8, 5 through 7, we're going to uh, look at civil authority. Um, I'll save that until we actually get to it, because that's what we're going to be studying tonight, Uh, So jumping quickly to number five, the nation, the last divine institution of God. This is in Genesis 11, one through nine. That's the uh, Tower of Babel, uh, where God actually sanctions nation states. In fact, he uses that as a protection against world government and the corruption that comes through world government. Uh, So nationalism is actually not only sanctioned by God, but it's one of his protections against the corruption of the tyranny of the 51%, or the tyranny of the oligarchy when too much power is fed to one. Um, So nations are actually a divine institution of God, and uh, he protects things like private property um, in those nations, and we see that especially as we go through the the nation-state of Israel um, and see how God governs that nation from within. All right, so our review of the specific points that we learned from the Edenic Covenant, uh, we learned that Adam, as humanity's representative, is a steward king of God's creation. God intended him to be head over um, this creation, but still subject to himself, subject to God, governing the creation on God's behalf. Uh, What that looks like is, um, well, God is broadly the king, the ruler of all, all the universe. This position of God's is never under question. Uh, But the steward king uh, operates in a smaller sphere of God's creation on this earth. So we are told to be stewards of this earth, uh, probably in order that we understand God's um, prerogative in governing um, justly, with love, with mercy, uh, it helps us to more intimately understand who God is uh, in order to, um, to share some of these responsibilities in the microcosm of creation, because ultimately God's goal in creation is his glory. And one way that he glorifies himself is to reveal his attributes to us. Um, and in that, we worship him. Uh, so one of these... Uh, One point of the Edenic Covenant, and remember these are contractual, so they're structured as contractual language, much like um, a legal contract would be. So, clause number one is to be fruitful and multiply and to replenish the earth. This is a responsibility of mankind. Because responsibility has been put on man, we see that it is a conditional covenant. It's conditional upon man's obedience to it. He is told to subdue the earth to make it habitable for mankind. Um, He is told to have dominion. This is one of our uh, divine mandates. That man's authority extended over all living things. Uh, We see this. uh, We see man actually fulfilling this divine mandate when he names the animals. He's having dominion over them. Uh, He is given a specific diet. He's supposed to be vegetarian. Uh, Only fruit is mentioned. Before the fall, this is something I'm playing with now. Uh, Only fruit is mentioned, and afterwards, the addition of grains. uh, But it says anything with the seed in itself. So um, I don't personally think that his diet was restricted only to fruits, but to uh, a vegetarian diet. Um, Most agree on that. It's a very minority view that thinks it was only fruit he was allowed to eat. Uh, That point aside, uh, labor, which is another divine institution inside of dominion. Uh, He's told to to tend the garden. The consumption of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is forbidden, and this is the condition of obedience. Because God put them in a perfect uh, sphere, there needed to be some sort of a test of man's obedience. Um, Otherwise, obedience untested is not actually obedience. Um, It's the inability to uh, do anything contrary to God. Uh, So obedience is uh, is the test that god gives them by putting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden the penalty for disobedience is death the scriptural concept of death has an eternal perspective on it not our own anthropological perspective on death which is the body dies everything disappears Um, it's separation of the body and the spirit the soul and the spirit uh, separation from god So um, how does a body die? The soul leaves the body. Uh, This separation, we understand this the same way with spiritual death, where how does the body die spiritually? The soul is separate from God. Uh, We are dead in our sins. We are separated from God in our sins. So this uh, penalty for disobedience was immediately separation from God. Um, And this is the separation of fellowship where there is now a rift uh, between man and God, and the only bridge um, that can correct that rift is a blood sacrifice, and that blood sacrifice is ultimately Jesus Christ. Uh, but this will also lead to physical death. Man in his, Man's body was not originally created to die. Um, death was a corruption of God's creation. Uh, this will be fixed in the new heavens and the new earth. What man corrupted, God will restore. Uh, so first in the millennial kingdom, we'll see expanded um, lifespans, similar to the um, pre-Diluvian, the anti before the flood, where Noah lived to 930 years, Methuselah to 969, uh, Jared to 962 and Lamech to 777. We're going to see these long lifespans again, and that's going to be good because it's going to be a period of 1,000 years. Uh, We're going to be living longer than Methuselah. Um, We will see uh, mortal bodies living longer than Methuselah lived. Uh, But in the new heavens and the new earth, we will all have our resurrection bodies, which is the body that Christ currently inhabits after his resurrection. Uh, We will be granted bodies uh, like these, that he is the first fruit of the uh, resurrection. Uh, we are the harvest of the resurrection. Uh, Let's see, we've got a question here. Wait, what are you talking about with the thousand years and life length? Uh, That's what we're going to be looking at specifically in uh, Revelation 21 through 10. It's a period in the future called the millennial kingdom, and we understand its length of a thousand years from Revelation 20, but we understand the concept of this millennial kingdom uh, from the promises from to the prophets um, in the Old Testament. Uh, When we get there, we're going to do a lot of focus on that. um, But it'll probably be something that pops up here in either our second hour conversation, or we might even take a break at some point um, just to talk about what the millennial kingdom is. that is uh, the anticipated future fulfillment of all promises that are unfulfilled, but are earthly promises um, to Israel. Um, So yes, we'll we'll dedicate some more time to that. Uh, We will doubtless touch on it quite a few times before we actually get there in the text, though. Uh, All right, so lastly, we see that this covenant was broken in Genesis 3, 1 through 8. That it was conditional in Genesis 2:17a, and thus it is not in effect today. It was replaced with the Adamic covenant. So this Adamic covenant, uh, Adam is humanity's representative as the steward of God's creation, uh, but now he is corrupted by sin, with Satan as de jure by the law and de facto as the actual uh, reigning king of this earth. And so conflict is now introduced to the narrative of scripture, where before there was perfect peace and harmony. Harmony. Uh, now there is an actual conflict, uh, a, a uh, monkey wrench in the machine, if you will. Um, and that comes through the deception of the serpent and um, the volitional sin of Adam. Um, so we see that the serpent uh, receives the first curse. He says, He is cursed above all creatures for harming man. Uh, Remember, man was God's crown jewel of creation. The serpent went right after that, um, and thus he is cursed above all creatures. Uh, He is to crawl on his belly, meaning it did not slither before this curse, uh, but likely walked as the beasts of the field. You'll see in Genesis 3.1 that he is more cunning than the beasts of the field. He is put in relation with these field beasts, uh, with which he's associated in Genesis 3.1. Um, could have been small or large, but it looks as if he were um, more like a dragon than a snake uh, prior to the fall. Could be where we get the um, all the Chinese myths and uh, South American myths, and even our own uh, European myths, uh, Greek and Roman, of dragons um, could have come from this Um, global memory from the pre-Noah world. Uh, His food is to be dust. This is a Hebrew idiom of cursing. Uh, Snakes don't actually eat dust, um, but it's a Hebrew uh, figure of speech basically to show his low position um, in the food chain. Uh, The curse will continue into the kingdom in Isaiah 65 and verse 25. Uh, Isaiah is talking about the millennial kingdom and the relations among creation that will be restored. This is where we see things like the uh, the child will put its hand into the adder's nest, uh, the lion will lay next to the lamb. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, the serpent will continue to eat dust uh, even in the millennial kingdom. That curse, that part of the curse, is not lifted off of the serpent, uh, Satan who usurped the role of king and stole the throne through trickery, uh, he will be a perpetual enemy with the woman. His hatred will culminate, or the hatred is going to culminate between Satan's seed and the woman's seed, uh, and the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed. Um, This is how we understand the crucifixion of Christ, the serpent wounding the heel of the woman's seed. But the seed of the woman will eventually crush the serpent's head. And this is the final destruction of Satan uh, prophesied in Revelation 20.10, where at the end of the millennial kingdom, uh, Satan will be destroyed and uh, thrown into the lake of fire along with the antichrist and the false prophet. And the woman... Uh, her curse is to have multiplication both in menstrual pain and also in conception, uh, where not only will her pain increase, but the frequency of birth will also increase. uh, Before, when they're living very long lives, um, or eternally, uh, it would have been before the fall, Um, there would not have been need for, uh, for quick turnaround in man, but the shorter the lifespan of man became, the quicker a woman would need to reproduce in order to maintain humanity. Uh, and uh, interesting clause is that she is to give birth in pain. Uh, in the Hebrew understanding, this has two sides to it. Both her own physical pain uh, will be increased, but also the pain in understanding that her child is born to die. Uh, that whereas before life had no end, now, Uh, the face of the child that she looks at is going to be um, tainted by death. Uh, And again, throughout history, um, we understand the pain of losing a child in in youth. Uh, Well, in the millennial kingdom, it it is said that a man will live to 100, and uh, when he dies, people will look at him and say, um, how unfortunate that a youth would die. Um, so the, um, the idea of youth for us is very abbreviated. Um, but for them, even dying into their hundreds would have been uh, dying in their youth. The man, Adam, is a representative of human race. Uh, he is held responsible for the curse, not Eve, um, and for the human condition. He is the one who was put in charge as the um, basically the highest on the food chain here. He's the one responsible for the actions of the woman. But also the woman was deceived by the serpents. Adam was not deceived by Eve or the serpent. Adam volitionally chose to disobey God, not doubting God, but choosing instead sin. Um, So he is held responsible, not Eve, uh, for the condition of the human race. Uh, Because of man's sin, the earth also receives a curse um, that it'll produce thorns and thistles. Uh, Thorns and thistles, uh, in biology, these are mutated leaves. Um, It's perfectly reasonable to understand this, that prior to the fall, uh, earth itself did not produce things such as thorns and thistles, but they are a mutation through the sin of man um, and judgment on him, that now his, his domain, his sphere, the earth itself, Uh, where he was supposed to govern fruitfully is now going to turn its back on him, essentially. Um, And we see this in the next two points as well, uh, that his diet is still vegetarian, but rather than fruit-laden trees, uh, he is to get his sustenance through labor, uh, laboring over grains of the field. Uh, He is now, uh, we're anticipating hard labor, and toiled just for the simple feat of survival for man. So he's going to have to work hard. Things aren't going to be provided for him like in the garden. Um, And also his end will be physical death. And without the blood atonement of Christ, uh, which is revealed progressively, uh, spiritual death as well. But having uh, hope, looking forward to that promised seed for them, um, that is where they look for salvation and trusting God that he has a plan. And uh, we we do see that Adam and Eve did have faith in God after the fall where he cursed them, where uh, Adam, right after this curse, looks at his wife and says, um, your name is Eve because you're the mother of all living. He understood God's curse, but he also understood inside of that God's promise of salvation. Um, so he looks at woman and says, you are the mother of all living, not because of her merit, but because of God's promise. Uh, this is an unconditional covenant. God does not put any uh, anything on man for him to receive this promise of a seed. Uh, this is an unconditional promise of God that he will save through uh, the seed of the woman. Uh, and this curse will be partially lifted in the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom. All right. So there's our long review of what we did last time in the foundations. That was back in uh, January. We did that. Uh, but here's kind of just a uh, a little graphic about what we're looking at here in Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, in the second epistle to Peter, verses 3, 5 through 6, uh, He says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Uh, So we're looking here at the flood and seeing that God looks at this as a distinction in time, where there is the world prior to the flood, and then there's the world now. Uh, Peter continues on saying that the world will be destroyed by fire, and then there will be the world to come. Um, So we call this the antediluvian age. Um, Ante meaning before, and diluvian meaning flood, um, coming from Latin. So the world before the flood, because um, the language that God uses in scripture to describe the flood is world changing, um, that it changed the very Uh, features of nature and how um, even physics work. Uh, Before the flood, there was no rainbow. Before the flood, the earth was not watered with rain. Um, The flood was the first time that rain ever appeared in the sky. Um, So we understand that the actual cosmology of the earth is drastically changed by the flood. Um, The fall as well um, drastically changed the sphere of creation, that creation doesn't Produce freely of itself, but it has to be cultivated out. Now, uh, these are changes in nature itself uh, that punctuate um, God's judgments. So uh, we're going to ultimately get to human government at the Tower of Babel before God will call out a special people. Rather than dealing with the whole world, He's going to deal with just a special people in order to um, to give to us special revelation, that is the scriptures. Uh, He is going to have to, for a time, set aside the Gentile world and create this peculiar people of Israel. Uh, Through them, he's going to bring salvation to the whole world. We'll see that in the Abrahamic covenant, that through Abraham, the whole world is blessed. How are they blessed? They're blessed through Jesus Christ, who comes from Abraham. They're blessed through the scriptures, which come from Abraham. And uh, eventually, in the Uh, millennial kingdom that'll be on this earth with Jerusalem as its uh, capital and Jesus Christ reigning as king. Uh, Those are the three ways in which uh, the world is blessed through Abraham. But this is all going to be the foundation upon which that blessing comes.